everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, when we look at the countries in Latin America, some will say some countries are strategically and politically moving much closer towards the nations in Asia. And given the condition and the fact that this global economy is expanding and on this unstoppable speed. But meanwhile, some countries are undergoing this tremendous political and social unrest. For example, the country of Chile. Now, based on the recent article that we know that this country, politically speaking, is facing some major hurdles. And also, how about the Constitution? And what about the modification for the Constitution? Will the new version continue to protect some of the minorities? and so forth. So that's why today it's our great honor to invite a distinguished speaker is Professor Siavalis. Now Peter Siavalis is a professor in the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Wake University and he has published on many aspects of Latin American and Chilean politics including candidate selection, election systems, presidency and informal institutions. And most importantly, his most recent edited book is called Democratic Chile, The Politics and the Policy of a Historic Coalition. Without further ado, Professor Ciavelis, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to be able to talk with you. Absolutely. The pleasure is oh my. Now, Professor, let's get to the question right away. Again, initially, I am very much uh, uh, amazed by this amazing article that you wrote and entitled how chile's constitutional overhaul emboldened the right now within this article the first question i want to address is it seemed to us that this there's going to be a constitutional convention and the purpose for the constitutional convention is to modify or rewrite the constitution so can you tell us what is the purpose to do uh, a such action, and how does that benefit the country in the long run? Yeah, actually, Chile right now is in the middle of the process of rewriting the Constitution. In fact, they handed in the sort of final document on March 14th that's going to go to a committee that's going to harmonize all of the articles that have been written so far for presentation by July 4th. And then once it's presented on July 4th, there'll be a period of public debate, and then Chileans will go to the polls in September in order to vote up or down on the, the new constitution. So it is a completely new constitution. It's not a reform constitution. It's a constitution that replaces the 1980 constitution, which was one instituted, in fact, forced on Chile by the outgoing dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet that ended in 1990, that began in 1973. And the 1980 constitution had some really strong controls on representational rights, um, on political parties, an electoral system that was not very democratic, um, in essence written to benefit the parties of the right, but I think also most importantly to enshrine public property um, as part of the Constitution. And part of this was privatized education, privatized social security, privatized health care, and all those elements really led to the sort of perpetuation of inequality in Chile. Mm -hmm. And in October of 2019, there were massive protests um, all across Chile um, that destroyed much of downtown Santiago. Uh, metro stations were, were torched. Um, gigantic protests broke out that mm -hmm. continued over a number of days. 
throughout the country, ultimately culminating in over a million people, almost a million people gathering in central Santiago in protest of the government and demanding um, constitutional change. So a lot of the ills of Chile in terms of uh, inequality, both in terms of basic income inequality, but also in income uh, inequality in terms of access to public services, uh, is really at the root of these demands. And without a fundamental constitutional reboot, uh, reformers thought it's sort of difficult in order to change Chile in the kind of ways that it needed to be changed. Well, Professor, I think that's a very good point. But again, when we are looking at current political changes in Chile, and again, just going back to what you explained to us before, when we talk about, well, when we even think about to rewrite the constitution for any other country, it's not a piece of uh, easy, I mean, it's not a piece of cake. So in other words, it's going to uh, be very, very tenacious and it's going to be very dreadful just to make sure that every single aspect will be covered in the new constitution. But meanwhile, that again, just follow your thoughts. How do we know, again, going back to your article, that the new constitution is going to protect the people's rights, or it's going to ensure that everything you, you met, just mentioned will also be written in the new constitution. So in other words, how do we know that this new funding document is going to keep people satisfied after this modification? Well, I'm not sure it's going to keep people satisfied. Um, but what I will say in terms of the, the, the first part of your question is that the constitution, first of all, this process in itself is completely unique. Mm. Um, as you noted, rarely is there any kind of a new constitution written in a country in times of democracy. Usually that happens at the end of an authoritarian regime or at the end of a civil war or mm. the end of a major defeat by an external power. Very rarely, in fact, I know of, I don't know of a single other case where a constitution has been rewritten in times of peace successfully. I mean, it was attempted in Iceland. It didn't quite mm. quite happen for a number of reasons there. So in that sense, the process is completely unique, unseen um, almost anywhere in the world. Second, in terms of protecting people's rights, um, I think what we can do is look at the draft document. The draft document is done. I mean, essentially, the basics of the constitution have already been set down um, in hundreds and hundreds of articles. Um, to begin with, the Constitution guarantees gender equity at every level of Chilean government. So to begin with, the Constitutional Convention itself, it was guaranteed that there would be gender equity, 50% men, 50% women in the right writing of the Constitution. The Constitutional Convention also had guaranteed seats for all of Chile's First Nations. Um, 17 of the 155 seats were reserved for representatives of Chile's First Nations. So those voices are heard in the Constitution. And then if you go, well, in the, in the drafting process, I mean. But so then if you go through the various articles of the Constitution, you'll see that gender equity is guaranteed, equity for, for uh, uh, sexual identity, uh, equity for uh, based on ethnicity, race, religion, all those guarantees are protected, as well as a woman's right to, for, to uh, reproductive choice. Mm. So the, the document is very, very heavy on guaranteeing rights. The question is right now, is whether it will be approved and whether it will go into force. That's the big if that's facing Chile right now. Mm. Professor, I want to go back to the article again. 
within the article that this is something that you wrote, and I quote, In May of 2021, Chilean elected political newcomers and independents and social movement activists to fill the 150-member uh, constitutional conventions. And both votes constituted an overwhelming defeat of a political class that had governed the country since dem a democracy's return in 1990s. Now, I guess we have to go back to this fundamental question is, how should we understand this, the far right versus the left? So in other words, uh, can you help us to understand this current political struggle between the left and the right? Well, I think it's more complicated than just a struggle, a struggle between the, the left and the right. Because if you look at the last presidential election where Gabriel Boric, um, a leftist, was elected, uh, he really represented an outsider on the left. Mm. And he faced off against Felipe Cast, who was another sort of Trump-like character, um, also an outlier and independent on the right. So I think more than talking about sort of extremes of ideology, I think the first point that you made in the, in the, the sentence that you cited from my article is this rejection of the current political class. So I'm not sure, I mean, I think as political scientists, what we try and do as we try and impose our own perspective saying, you know, this is a rightist point of view, this is a leftist point mm. of view. In reality, what I think it is, is I don't think Chileans are thinking in left-right terms, they're thinking of a rejection of what they've lived through since the 1990, since the 1990s, which was really living under a constitution, first of all, written by a dictatorship, and second of all, second of all overseen by a political class of both the left and the right that was unresponsive to the demands for change and the, change, the necessary changes that Chile, Chileans saw it with respect to their overall economic system, but also with respect to access to public services, access to social services, equality and justice when it came to education, health care, um, and retirement. So in that sense, I don't think we can talk about you know, a necessarily a turn to the left that analysts like to talk about all the time or a turn to the right. You know, we see these these terms all the time. I think what that message showed is a rejection of the status quo mm. and a demand for something new. Mm. I think, again, Professor, as you are describing this change, again, you say the voters or the constituents within the country of Chile is rejecting, you know, the status quo or it's no longer feeling satisfied uh, with this whole limitations of this political or economic system. But I think for most of us that we are still very concerned about this economic situation or this economic crisis among the nations in Latin America. But it's given the fact that we know based on the reports, some of the countries, not all of them, some of the countries in Latin America are facing this economic crisis or this economic deficit. So in other words, it doesn't matter if the person from the left or the per person from the right, but how would you describe this current economic imbalance in Chile? And and again, after this constitution, how does that constitution even even benefit people from this economic standpoint and not just about the rights? Well, I think Chile is a country that's been characterized, I mean, I think it's sort of unique in, in Latin America because actually during times of, of economic crisis, uh, even though Chileans reject these governments of the left and of the right, the governments have been characterized by very careful economic management, fiscal responsibility, I think that's a tradition that's ingrained within Chile. Mm. Now the question is, I mean, I think you're correct. I mean, all of the, the whole continent is facing a deep economic crisis. That's external 
Uh, it's partly internal mismanagement in some countries. I wouldn't call that, I wouldn't say that's the case in Chile. A lot of it is external shocks, but that doesn't change how painful it is for everyday Chileans. Um, but if we look at the constitutional rewrite, one of my points in that article is that opponents of the new constitution on the right, what they're trying to do is paint this is sort of a, a pinata, right? Mm. That there's something for everybody in this constitution, that this is a giveaway, that this is, you know, going to just uh, spend Chile into oblivion, there's going to be too much spent on social rights. I don't see it that way, because if you look at it, it's a very carefully crafted uh, document, because it does guarantee rights to health care, it does create a national health system, but it doesn't eliminate the private one. Hmm. It does create a series of public institutions that are going to cost the Chilean government um, money. But at the same time, also enshrined in the Constitution is a guarantee of fiscal responsibility, that these have to be managed without putting the country into uh, significant amounts of debt. Hmm. So I do think there's fiscal guarantees written into this Constitution. Because a lot of the crisis, you know, I wrote this article along with a colleague, Jennifer Piscopo, and, and, and we, the, the birth of the, the, the article really was our um, dismay at what we were seeing in a lot of the international press. Mm. Um, you know, one analyst from the Wall Street Journal said that Chile was committing economic and political suicide. Mm. Another analyst in Chile said that this was going to turn Chile into Venezuela or Argentina or something mm. in between. And we thought that we really needed to sort of clear the air on that, and that neither of those things was true. I mean, this is not a Chavista-style constitution, not a kind of constitution that uh, was written by Morales in, in, in Bolivia. So I think we're facing something that's fundamentally different here. Now, the bigger question of whether the external pressures on the Chilean economy are going to be able to put it into a position where it's going to be able to afford these things if this constitution indeed passes is another question. But that's a question that's facing every single country in the world, including the United States, Europe, um, um, countries in Asia. Uh, so that's just a bigger question. Hmm. But friends, I want to go back to uh, the next proportion of your article. Again, I quote, going back to the convention, the convention called its approach, a quote, democracy in real time you know just just when we think about the word democracy and again for every single country today under globalization and also internationalism we see the word democracy differently and of course that we interpret the word democracy uh, in differently i mean again one country that uh for example when we look at the U united states it's a it's a it's supposed to be a role model for this democratic system or capitalistic system but if we look at countries in europe or countries in asia the word democracy can be misinterpreted you know in many ways so again professor coming back to your point the convention is called a democracy in real time. And how should we understand the word democracy given the current uh, political or social status or changes in Chile today? Uh, does that mean it's just uh, only a name on the banner or that's actually a workable system that fits not only for the people in government, but also for the people in average? 
Well, yeah, there's a lot of wrapped up in that question that you just <laughs> that you just asked. But yeah, I mean, to begin with, I think you know, a definition of democracy. I think you're entirely correct. I mean, this is something basic that I talk to my students about because you know, critics of the United States, and I don't necessarily, I, I wouldn't contend that the United States is a role model for democracy. Mm. <laughs> I think that there's there's way too many problems embedded into this system, uh, both socially and and, and politically, mm. with respect to our institutions. That have the United States democracy in crisis, and I think January 6th showed that, right? Mm. Um, also, in terms of the wider view of what democracy means, I mean, very much in the United States, there's a sort of minimalist view of democracy that's much different than, say, you know, the, the, the Chinese definition of what, mm. what the, the, they see as democracy, that's or, right. or, or the, the Scandinavians, what they see as democracy. That's right. You know, because people say, how can you really call the United States a democracy if there's not access to fundamental health care. Mm. How can you call this a democracy when it has the highest rates of incarceration in the world? Right. Uh, there's all sorts of issues that make this, in many ways, not fit the defini de definition of democracy um, that's held by many people that are outside observers of the United States. But I think if we look into Chile, I think it's moving more towards what we could consider um, a worldwide standard of, of, of what we consider democracy because the 1980 constitution uh, that governs Chile today and that will continue to govern Chile unless this new constitution is passed really has fundamental limits on representation mm. doesn't guarantee basic rights um, so uh, I think by with this with this new constitution I think we're going to see an expansion of fundamental rights based on identity, gender, ethnicity, but also an expansion of rights to take into account the fact that rights to healthcare will be guaranteed, rights to education will be guaranteed, um, without the wholesale elimination of the private sector. So in my view, I think the Constitution, unlike some of its critics, would contend, actually walks this, this really fine line between what we can say is a a constitution based solely on political rights and one that leans towards the guarantee of economic rights. So I think this, in this sense, is um, a good balance between those two tendencies when we think about democracy in the world. Hmm. Well, I know, uh, Professor, you mentioned many times, and again, uh, uh, regarding the topic on healthcare and on education, can you help us to understand what is the problem today regarding this education system in Chile? So again, g given the fact that this new constitution is going to guarantee a new version of education or however we can put it, but I think it's crucial for us to understand what is the ed education system is facing today uh, regarding its obstacles or hardships and how will this new constitution is going to uh, change the current dilemma or is going to um, solve the crisis, uh, 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 quote, uh, uh, problems in, in, in education today? Yeah, I think again, to understand that, going back to the social explosion of 2019, of October 2019, um, you, you know, there's, there was a series of, I mean, people trace this, this, this protest movement to 2019, but, you know, it started much earlier, I mean, 2008, 2010, widespread national protests against the educational system, mm -hmm. feminist protests in 2018, 
a whole series of protests that only culminated in this gigantic social explosion mm. in 2019. And all of those were about fundamental rights and justice, I think. I mean, I think at the root of what's happening right now is a sense by most Chileans that there's a lack of justice in the system. Mm. And this is tied to the educational system. At the, uh, the, the pre-college level in Chile, there's three different kinds of schools. There's private schools, there's public subsidized schools, and then there's right out public schools. But only, you know, less than 10% of the population goes to these completely private schools that are very expensive, mm. yet they make up about 60% of the students that get into elite colleges. So this is seen as fundamentally unjust, and in the public school, it's very, it's very difficult for students to have access to higher education. Mm. That means if you have more money, you can pay your way into college. And then when we get to the level of college education, um, it's, it's extremely expensive. I mean, in the OECD, in real terms, it's the, the either the first or second most expensive higher education system per capita uh, between it and the United States. Mm. Uh, so Chileans are spending a higher proportion of their money on higher education than almost any country in the OECD. Mm. And it's seen that that access is limited mm. to only people with a lot of resources. So there's a lack of social mobility, there's a lack of access to education, and Chileans want to see that changed. And they want to see that changed through a very large state role in the educational sector, both at the pre, both at the, the K through 12 level, well, what we call in the United States K through 12, elementary, pre-college, mm. um, and, and the secondary education and post-secondary. So I think what that's, that's really what it sort of comes down to is this uh, lack of perception of a sense of justice, and that extends into other areas of social provision. When we talk about healthcare, we can say something very, very similar. There's a private healthcare system that serves a very small percentage of the population, and a larger state system that is nowhere near the quality uh, in terms of actual care and mm -hmm. access as the private one, but that one's limited to a smaller percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. Same thing in, in pensions and retirement. So in all of these areas, there's a sense that there's two Chiles, one that is wealthy and has access to high level, high quality public services, and one that has to rely on, on, you know, on the public sector for lower quality services in areas of education, healthcare, and retirement. You know, Professor, again, as you were describing this uh, um, deficit in healthcare and also in education, that really bring us to uh, the next topics regarding the younger generations today. You know, again, we know that today across the continent, younger generations are very active in every single country, pretty much, politically and socially. So they're actually pushing or uh, uh, activating uh, uh, this political or social agenda. Now, going back to the people uh, in Chile today, Professor, how would you describe the reactions among the younger generations in terms of this rewriting this constitution and, in, uh, and in, instead of carrying on this constitution since the early 90s? So, in other words, how active are the young people today in, in Chile uh, in terms of uh, to uh, fight against this inequality in education and healthcare and also supporting this convention towards a better constitution for the country? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's hard to overestimate the role that young people have played in this entire process. If we remember, we go back to 
the student protests that started over a decade ago, we find Gabriel Boric, who is currently the president of Chile, is one of those student leaders. That whole generation of leaders like Camilo Vallejo, um, um, Gabriel Boric, um, emerged during these protests that were led by young people. Mm-hmm. And young people have spearheaded these protests consistently in, in, in every wave of protests that we've seen um, in Chile. Also, in terms of looking at the age of the government right now, again, you know, it may not, 30, 35 to, to 40 may seem ancient to a lot of young people um, in their 20s, but, you know, that represents a real renovation of Chile's political class. I mean, he's the youngest president in history and has the youngest average age of cabinet ministers of any Chilean president in history. So in that sense, there is this generational replacement going on among the Chilean elite. But then if we go down even further, students, young people continue to spearhead this movement for change and this demand for reform in Chile. They were at the forefront of it. They continue to be. Um, There's an expression in Chile that's often used, it's called la generación sin miedo, um, the generation without fear. And that's essentially a whole entire generation of, of of young people that did not come up during the dictatorship, that don't have experience living under the dictatorship, that have a fundamentally different view of politics that's less conservative, mm. um, that demands more representation, uh, that uh, demands more change. Um, and, and so in this sense, I think we can, we, we it, as, as I began, like you can't underestimate the extent to which young people uh, are important in this political system. But what I fear is, as this constitutional process unfolds, is that I think young people also, there's the potential there for them to become disillusioned with the process in itself. And that was part of our concern in drafting this article as well, is that the right is playing on this process in order to stoke fears, not just among young people, but among the entire Chilean populace, that this is somehow a radical constitution that departs from Chilean values that departs from Chilean history that departs from Chile Chile's constitutional um, tradition. Mm. Um, and I think that's fundamentally wrong. Professor, I know you're very busy. I only got two more questions before letting you go. Now let's go go back to the article towards the end of the part. Let's talk about this presidential race. And again, still, uh, we have a couple months to go uh, when we're actually looking into the race uh, much deeper. But now at this moment, When we look at, let's say, the neighboring countries, Brazil, you know, when we look at the current president in Brazil, even uh, even within the article that you wrote that people thought uh, uh, the current president in Brazil, I guess, symbolizes or embodies this Donald Trump personality. You know, again, on one hand, he's very hawkish uh, towards foreign policy, you know, for, towards uh, this internationalism. But on the other hand, he's very, quote, conservative or he's very protective in uh, towards his own people. Now, from your perspective, we're also looking at different candidates uh, who join this Chile's presidential race. Now, can you help us to understand how should we understand this presidential race uh, uh, in Chile? And also, how does that look? Or how, I mean, what kind of obstacles uh, is the current uh, a president could be facing uh, uh, during this presidential race? Well, actually, the presidential race is really not, for the next round, is really not like like 
kicked into play quite yet, right? Because we have Gabriel Boric, who's just recently been elected president of Chile, um, who just sworn in, right? And really experienced not much of a honeymoon. Mm. Um, I, I think looking to the future, I think part of what uh, our article was trying to get at was that you can see tendencies within the process moving towards the vote on the new on the new constitution which will be in september mm. you can see illiberal tendencies of the type that you're talking about with bolsonaro with orban and and hungary with trump you know the worldwide sort of anti-liberal trend which is of concern and that anti-liberal trend got about 35 percent of the vote in the last presidential election actually edging out gabriel Boric until the second round where Gabriel Boric came back in to win with 54%. So I guess my point is, and our point is in the article, is that illiberal right is not going to disappear into nowhere. If this process fails, in many ways, you know, Kast, Felipe Kast, is standing sort of in the wings, ready for the next presidential election, and could, if there's widespread dissatisfaction with the way this process is going on, and the pace of change, has the potential for him to, again, come to power with this illiberal agenda that we've seen in so many places in the world in the last 10 years. Mm. Professor, I want to end our conversation with a very simple question, but again, I want to read something that you wrote. If voters ultimately choose reject the dictatorship, dictatorship era constitution will remain in force along with the democratic deficits stemming from the country's authoritarian past fear-mongering will deliver a victory to those who prefer the status quo can you help us to understand what are you saying in the sentence so in other words on one on one side i guess we should move away from this dictatorship style government but meanwhile the future for the country is unknown. You know, so so in order to for people to look for hope or look for better chances, there has to be a better system or there has to be a, 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 a second option. So in other words, within the sentence, what do people uh, uh, hope for? Or in other words, what are people looking for in terms of in constitution, in terms of the direction of the country? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a very complicated question because um, it's an evolutionary answer, right? Because we had just uh, just uh, uh, two years ago uh, overwhelming rejection of the political class. 80% of Chileans demanding a new constitution. Then the overwhelming election to the Constitutional Convention of Outsiders and Independents, right? Mm. So this represents a very high demand for change. But once a change constitution was drafted, it sort of it seemed to have scared people a little bit because right now, from that 78% that was demanding a new constitution, right now public opinion polling data is only showing that about 38% are going to vote to approve. Um, you know, 40% say they're going to reject, and then the rest are somewhere on the fence. So this this is a game very much in play, and the reason we wrote that article was to underscore this idea that what people need to do and what Chileans need to do is really read the constitutional draft, not believe some of the disinformation, not believe some of the fear-mongering, but look at what the Constitution actually does. Because if protesters really were demanding more justice, if they really were demanding better 
access to public services. If they really were demanding a more decent life, many of those demands are met by this new constitution. But our point was, is that it's being misrepresented. Uh, so what I'm, both intentionally, but also because of the way the process played out. You, <coughs> excuse me, this whole democracy in real time, um, what it did was, Every proposal was out there. Mm. Every proposal was tweeted. Even proposals that had no chance of passing. So somebody may have said, let's change the flag. Had zero support. Never gets through committee. Mm. Never gets to the plenary. And then in the press you see a headline, Constitutional Convention proposes to change the flag. Mm. That's simply wrong. Mm. right? And so our point also was, is the way the process, the very transparency of the process in a way, in a way, undermined uh, uh, support for it because of this misinformation. So, what we're hoping for as the final draft emerges, as this comes out in July, that what we'll see is a more coherent document, and the forces that favor approve the approved vote will be able to project a coherent message about what this constitution does and how it meets the demands of everyday Chileans. Mm. I guess, again, for every single country, going back to, uh, Professor, what you just said, the constitution has been one of the major founding documents, I guess, for any other countries. And again, uh, for a lot of countries. But in order to make the constitution more effective and more powerful, and I guess for the voters or for the constituents, really have to uh, pay attention to the details and to believe that it's going to work, not just as a document, but also as a promise from the government to the people. Now, Peter Salvilas, it's a professor in the Department of politics and international affairs at wake university and his most recent edited book is entitled democratic chile the politics and the policy of a historic coalition now professor thank you so much for taking your time to join the show it's been a pleasure speaking to you and we love to keep in contact with you and have you back on the show as we continue to monitor and watch the political and social progress not only in chile but also among the other countries in Latin America. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here.